Before we start this episode, I want to give a big shout out to Zipster, local web people who help entrepreneurs and artists make kick-ass websites and get found online. Visit Zipster.com to find out more information. And on to the episode. This is Haley Motzinger, and you're listening to Free Pizza. Free Pizza, your platform for creatives, and today we have the one and only Lauren Strohacker in here. What's up, Lauren? Hey, what's up? Thanks for the interview. I'm really excited. Of course, my friend. We met. Um, you were actually setting up, and I was uh, looking at another exhibit, but <laughs> and I took your photo there with you not really uh, being prepared <laughs> for it at all. So that's how we met at Sika, and uh, we uh, now we're here. We are. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. It was great. Sometimes, you know, I'm just better off the cuff, unprepared, just getting it done. And, and you were fantastic. So it was a it was a great time for me, albeit <laughs> unexpected. Absolutely. And because Philip was like, you want to take a photo now? I was like, I don't think she's ready at all because you were setting up the exhibit. So, but it turned out well and uh, they used the photos and uh, it, it was awesome. But you yeah. are um, an eco-political artist, which is the first I've ever had anyone like that on this show ever. So this is super cool. Um, so you can explain kind of what that is later on, but I want to kind of go back and get an idea of who you are or were sure. or whatever before we uh, get to the art stuff. So where were you born and let's go from there. Yeah, I was born in Lorain, Ohio. So that's up on Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. And then I, I grew up and went to school in a, the town next to it called Amherst. So that's about okay. um, 30 minutes west of Cleveland. Wow. And how was life growing up there? Were your parents artists or how was, was there any early influence there? It's funny you say that they would not, they would not say they're artists, but when I look back and kind of put the pieces together, I think they both had their own um, connections for me. So, so when I grew up, so I'm also an identical twin, you should know before I bring that up. So okay. <laughs> story, it makes sense. <laughs> I'm an identical twin sister. She's a scientist. Um, so it's great, like marriage of the sister disciplines, right? Yeah. Um, but so what's funny is before before Kelly and I were born, my parents painted a little mural on our bedroom wall. I wonder if I have it. Oh, I, I can show it to you, even though the podcast won't see it. Oh. So my parents... My dad always doodled, right? My dad liked drawing, and my mom was really good at following directions. My mom was a dancer her whole life. She'd be the first to say that she was no. you know, a choreographer's dream. She's like, I didn't choreograph. I just did what people told me. Um, you know, she didn't carry it through past college. But so they both were little creatives in their own way, um, and they're always happy to help me kind of express that. So I wonder if you can see this. So this is my bedroom wall no. of animals that, <gasps> yeah. So my parents did this. What? And You're... so, Yep. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. So, so my connection with wildlife and art happened from, from you know, right off the bat. Right as soon as I came home, that was my first connection to wildlife was through art um, that my parents did. So, so even though they're not artists by um, trade in any way, that that I think deeply influenced um, who I was and what I thought about as a creator. Absolutely. Shout out to your parents. I'm going to call them artists because your mom was a dancer. That's definitely an art form. And shout <laughs> yes. out to, that's amazing. And I love going back and hearing these early influences because sometimes you don't realize how important that was until later on. So mm-hmm. um, good for you. And shout out to just your sister and everybody. It's, it's freaking cool. Um, so back then, were you like, 
after seeing that mural or whatever in your room, were you like super like hyped on animals and wildlife and were you outside a lot? Were you hiking, doing, you know, all the nature stuff or what were we doing? I I love when people bring that up. That's that's um is connected as that might seem that wouldn't be accurate for me so growing up i was connected to to wildlife simply because of the traditional kind of mediated representations my mom took kelly and i to the zoo every saturday um for little classes on animals so i would you know have these great memories of of you know rain rainbow boa constrictors and galapagos tortoises and learning about wildlife um, and then we had things like zoo books, right? Do you mm-hmm. remember those? I do um, remember zoo so books. Zoo books, things like that. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know what? And but my, you know, my parents are pretty suburban. I was grown, I was raised in very suburban Ohio. Um, not my parents are not outdoors people. I didn't grow up that way. Um, and I also, you know, you didn't learn among a million things we don't learn um, in this country. You know, I thought wolves and, and things like that were like, well, they live in Yellowstone, they live in Alaska, or they lived in places along. I had no idea they lived like there should have been living in my backyard, right? Yeah. So if I jump forward, those are kind of the realizations that that underpin my work about what we're really missing. Um, of course, you know, people fall into that category, but this just the world was was so different not that long ago. Um, more exciting, more more biodiverse, more diverse in so many ways. Um, but, but so that isn't, that isn't kind of how I think about myself. Like I've been lucky enough. My art has taken me to a few remote places, Mm -hmm. um, the Northern Jaguar reserve in Mexico Mm. being the most remote place I've ever been (laughs) for about four days. Um, but I've camped in like, uh, I've camped in Colorado. I've camped, but I have a really healthy fear of wildlife and being outside. Like I have a lot of stress. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, and what I think about that as it impacts my work is that even though I might have a healthy fear, kind of how biologically we're brought up, um, I still think those species should exist, right? I still think that yeah. there should be mountain lions in our backyards. I think there should be, there's other protocol than just disappearing them. So I come from that place of very suburban, not outdoorsy, not super comfortable <laughs> in the wilderness, um, but trying to experience um, what that world might have been like. Um, before this kind of colonization and this this very human-centric building that we've been um, doing for the last few hundred years. Absolutely. And I got to ask your opinion. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just genuinely curious. What is your opinion on zoos? It's, it's conflicting. I will tell you some, several people I've met and worked with at zoos will be the first ones to tell you they hope for a world where they don't have to exist. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think I fall in that category. I think there's a lot of problems with zoos in terms of entertainment value, um, you know, not great enclosures. Mm. You know, they. I think people it, in their core try to do their best, especially when they're, I will say, like, you want zoos that are recognized by the, like, National Zoo and Aquarium, whatever organization that is, um, like roadside zoos and, like, those out of safari are awful um, for wildlife. But, yeah. but I do think people try their best, uh, but I certainly fall in that category of, what I like best about zoos are their conservation efforts, and um, and hopefully that's what moves forward in the future. Mm-hmm. I personally wouldn't be upset if zoos ceased to exist as they do today and just became conservation hubs. Um, yes. But I learned a lot from the, the Cleveland Zoo, so it, you know I fall on that both sides where I wouldn't be where I am today without the Cleveland Zoo, but I do see the the problems with that kind of. Um, imprisonment of, of animals for human entertainment um, yeah. and education, but absolutely yeah, complicated. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way, and uh, I grew up obviously going to zoos as field trips and stuff like that. That was pretty common for every kid, but um, it's seeing the mistreatment videos. You know the thing with the what was that? 
um, documentary on the Wells. Um, God. Oh, cease, um, <clears throat> black something. Blackfish. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So watching that, I'm just like, ah, I don't know. I'm kind of iffy, but at the same time, I learned so much going to zoos as an educational thing, and I wouldn't be able to see some of that stuff if I was unless I was in like the African safari or whatever, you know. So it's it, it's, it's a good and bad thing. But I was very curious to ask about you about that when I knew we had this interview set up. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a person of of conflict. I'm very comfortable not picking sides or playing a purity system because things are so complex. People's ideas of what's right is very complex. Yeah. Um, So I do try to focus on the most important parts, which for zoos would be um, their conservation efforts and their education efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyways, back to you growing up. Um, were you a part of like, because you say you like going camping and all that stuff and being out in the wilderness. Were you like part of any like girl scouts or camping trips or anything like that as you got older like were you going on any kind of you know field trips like that not really i was in brownies for like about two weeks and then i didn't like it anymore um but but i was um and i was i was an athlete growing up i was a gymnast from when i was four till i was about 14 then i played volleyball through high school so it's funny the art thing i really don't fall into this like traditional art pathway right like i didn't i drew i drew a lot when i was growing up i was always drawing um, my parents would put me in art classes and, and what's funny is I went to undergrad, I went to Ohio state and I actually started in the political science department. I was, wow. had these ambitions of being a lawyer, a lobbyist for wildlife groups. Um, but then <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly, I realized that politics was not something that I was cut out for, um, no. far too sensitive for those things. And I was very lucky to be taking a, a drawing class for an elective, um, with a, she's an adjunct professor that sat me down and she said, if you don't at least consider minoring or double majoring, um, then you'd be losing out on something with art. And I truly thought about that for a little bit. And instead of doing either of those things, I just changed my major. And I told, I told my parents later, um, a little bit later, not too long later, my dad was like, do what you want, do what you love. And my mom kind of had a little existential crisis worrying if I would be like, you know, starving artist. But I was real prepared. I was like, I'm going to go to undergrad. I'm going to go get my MFA. I can teach with that, all that stuff. So they're they're very proud. They're very excited. But yeah, my pathway was not traditional. It was kind of like athlete, kind of political minded um, wow. into the arts. So you can kind of see where that, that political and ecology certainly come together in these, yep. for me, a non-traditional way. Absolutely. Is that, okay, that makes a lot more sense then. So, okay, yes, go through your time at Ohio State. Um, did you go straight into college after high school? Yeah, I did. I did go to college after high school. Okay. Um, being an educator now, I've been for a, you know over a decade. Part of me wishes I would have that the idea of a gap year or more was more <laughs> acceptable because yep. I certainly went to Ohio State and my grades were fine, but I certainly was partying. <laughs> I was you know, doing that eighteen-year-old thing. Um, so so yes, I did go to to undergrad right out of high school. And I took a year off between undergrad and grad school, which mm-hmm. I don't look back on as a mistake, but I would tell young artists to take more time. Um, and quite frankly, and I'm this is one of the things I always tell young artists, any artist of any age, um, is this focus on failure and how many people don't want to put that out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I left Ohio State, I was kind of riding this high horse of being you know, a, an, an artist who was doing really interesting things. And I applied to grad school and didn't get in anywhere. Oh, um, wow. And so that was that point where I had to decide, well, what am I going to do? So like that, that was like the first real ego blow, I guess I would say, um, to an extent from an art perspective. 
And what I ended up doing was saying like, I'll, I'm going to give myself a year. I'll live with my, my parents. I'm going to get a job. So I got a job working at a bookstore full time. And then I found a little studio space that was between the bookstore and my home. So I had a little studio that I just worked for a year um, on new work, really integrating what was interesting to me, doing more research at the bookstore, reading yeah. more about ecology and wildlife and, and taking that opportunity and that job to rethink my strategy. Um, and then developed a small body of work based off of animal collage and books and and got into several grad schools the next year. And I ended up choosing um, Arizona State for a number of reasons. So I had a big like slap in the face and I think that was so valuable for me. It was so important to, to have that. Yes. And I've had a couple more of those over the years that I look back on as pivotal moments more than the successes. So I try to like, the failures are like so valuable. <laughs> I really <laughs> wanna remind people of that and to not be afraid of them or or, you know, dejected by them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also just following forward, you know, taking every failure, quote unquote, as a lesson, you know, and just taking it for where it is and going to the next thing. So you got to fail. It's going to happen to everyone. Totally. I've failed many a times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. No one succeeds without failing. If they do, they're lying. <laughs> it, all, absolutely lying, for sure. <laughs> and I want to go back because I obviously want to get your um, – experiences in your first show so you had soaked in war room in 2006 2007 so and obviously you had shows all throughout but i want to talk about those first ones just how they felt how you got them prepared and kind of what you took away from them so you talk about soaked in war room a little bit yeah so war room was my first um very first exhibition out of well i guess okay i'll go back and do soaked because that was my undergrad thesis Ohio State had a really cool way, and I, I hope they still do it this way, I don't know, but they had a really cool way with the BFA undergraduates, the Bachelor of Fine Arts, mm -hmm. that you you had a group show, which a lot of big schools still just ha have a group show of the BFAs, um, but to have the BFA, you also had to go out and get a solo show. Now, of course, it was kind of known with the galleries in the short north and around Columbus that like, you know, you're gonna try to give them a show, try to fit them in. But that was their first practice of like pitching a proposal and and you had to put it together. You had to like make that space yours and you had to, you know, do the invites and all those things. And so they, Ohio State, uh, even though for me, I thought they were a very experimental conceptual art school, which was fantastic. Um, they also married that with that logistical, like you have to go out there and ask, you have to go out there and work. Um, and my professors at Ohio State were really straightforward that if, being an artist isn't going to make you famous or rich, most likely, um, yeah. but it's <laughs> such a beautiful way to move through the world. And I've always taken that um, to heart. And so so I went out there, I found this gallery above the Cerulee Girl, which is a bar in the Short North, which is the Arts District in Columbus, mm -hmm. and, and put together this show. And so at that time, I was really focused. I was just starting to think about like my environment and where I grew up. I wasn't really touching on wildlife per se, directly, I was making these, um, I was still oil painting at that point. Wow. Um, I was making these seascapes, these lakescapes of Lake Erie, where I grew up, where I was, you know, swimming in probably when you weren't, shouldn't have been. Oh, <laughs> um, Lord. Back, then, back in the, <laughs> back in the 80s and 90s, um, when it wasn't as clean as it might be. But um, so, so I was making these kind of seascapes of, of Lake Erie and very abstracted, very much about, you know, I was thinking about, you know, um, sailboat masts and I was thinking about Lake, lake goals, sea goals. I was thinking about fish jumping out of the water. I was thinking about the mythology of um, South Bay Bessie, the sea monster that supposedly lives in Lake Erie. So these really interesting, like abstracted things. And I was playing with material in, in, in more experimental ways. I was painting on plexiglass. I was kind of making these sculptural things, um, but it was still relatively traditional, you know, kind of large, large scale painting on canvas. 
Um, but I was just dipping my toe, I guess, pun intended, into this idea of, of a landscape that was more than just me or more than just humans. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first show, my, my BFA solo at, at Ohio State. And so when I had gotten rejected from grad school and took that year off, I was so lucky to start getting my first mentors outside of academia. Nice. And so um, Vermilion, which is a, another town um, west of Cleveland, um, they call it vacation land. It's where a lot of like people that boat will live. And oh, sick. Um, I, I think they still have this policy where like corporations can't be in city limits. It's this very quaint, <laughs> like, wow. you know, very, it's, a, it's just this little kind of boating town. Um, but, but they opened this gallery with a woman named Sherry Bradshaw and it's still there as far as I understand. And she was just doing this experimental shit. She, the first show she put out there in the world was um, she taken these trees, hung them upside down, painted them blood red, and it was this um, was this commentary or polemic on the Iraq War. And this wow. is, I mean, Vermillion's, I think, a highly conservative town. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I mean, like Ohio. Um, so she was, I mean, she was out there, and she was not making work. She didn't care about selling. Like she taught me a lot about art that said something and wasn't just about you know selling. We, making it's cool money. to sell. I loved making living off my art, <laughs> but. <laughs> But my first influence was were just like talk to people like art is communication yeah. over everything else and Ooh. the hard conversations the hard conversations can really be made slightly easier through art or have a little more dimension than than a than a conversation but so that's the the first gallery i kind of visited and i just went to look at it and you know i told her i was an artist and then we started just having these regular meetings you drink tea we would talk about art and thinking and books and she just like took me from like child to adult in this art world in this way like how to think and so um she gave me my first exhibition which was war room and that term kind of came from that when i think back on it I, like I, I make the and now i'm like thinking this now um i probably made that connection from that political strategy right like the war room is where you go yes. um and i that's so bizarre that i like thought of that now um but i was reading all of these books on extinction and um and I was getting these old books and some people don't like this, but I was kind of tearing up the books and, and making collages and cutouts <laughs> um, and painting and doing ink, like ink paintings on them. Um, so I probably saw a couple pieces from that. So I was just taking these images of animals, painting over them in ink, making them look a little more strange, um, abstracted. And it was this commentary. Oh, and I also took some ink and drew on the gallery floor um, rope traps like the the snares. So I was making these snares oh. to see if people would kind of walk through them. And so I had these pieces of paper from books that were hanging on the wall. And then this kind of installation of, of painted snares on the floor um, with this kind of golden brown paint. And so Sherry just let me do you know, crazy cool stuff that you know not everyone would let you. And so War Room was really my my first attempt at like to say something, right? To say I'm thinking about these animals now. And a lot of my work, when I say that, I, in a lot of ways, I'm speaking to myself, right? Like, I consider myself a forever student. I am not yes. a voice of um, yes. of domination in any way. I'm not like a, a like a, a thought leader in the field of ecology or wildlife or anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm experiencing my own questions, understanding, and interrogating what I thought was a normal existence and, and what is completely abnormal if we, you know, get rid of that, like, mindset that I grew up in. Um, so, so those are those first two shows. I was just dipping my toe into, into the idea of my surroundings. And then one where I was kind of going full tilt, like what the fuck are we doing? Like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> um, I love here. that. So it sounds like one room, one room was like pretty pivotal in your 
journey as an artist where you just like, yes. I don't mm-hmm. care about selling, I don't care about any of that. I'm just going to do what the fuck I want to get my point across and we're going to see where it goes. Yep, wow. you got it. Like I was just so lucky to have to have some people in my life and especially Sherry that was just like, it's not about selling isn't the first priority or doesn't have to be. And so it relaxed me in some ways to just make work that was also not well crafted, right? When I know we'll talk about grad school probably, but that was one of my critiques is like, you're not a good craftsperson. I really am not. <laughs> I don't have a lot of patience. And so I like to make things quick and dirty and sketchy. Um, and, you know, and, and I think in s- some critiques you you hear and you you pivot and then some you lean into, you're like, well, that's part of who I am. I can pivot in other ways. But part of me is, you know, when I'm a bad craftsman, I just learn to write grants and then pay other people to make things better <laughs> than I could make with my hands. You know, so um, so win win for s- some people. But but yeah, it was it was definitely like a quick and dirty show. It was, you know, paper pinned to the wall, weird found frames like it was just not beautiful, but it was um, it was the word I would put it would just be, it was in my face. It was in, it was in the face of other people. And so it really just allowed me to worry less about what people thought was capital A art. Um, Cause it's not about the art. If the real art is people thinking about wildlife and their connection to it and, and what their choices are um, exactly. as they move through the world. I so love... yeah, pivotal is a great way to put it. Yes. I love that. So I guess when that was on display, did you have a lot of great conversations with people or maybe people was very confused about what you were doing? Like how was the uh, reception from a, uh... Uh, yeah so what's funny is uh, this is also one of my favorite questions is reception um because i'm always a little nervous i'm not actually a very confrontational person unless i'm defending like my sister or something like that like generally <laughs> I, I get nervous with confrontation um, so i always worry what i'm putting out there what are people going to say what it's going to be the worst you know case scenario but quite frankly what happened at that exhibition and what continues to happen at every exhibition i've ever done is nobody talks to me about my art. Mm. So few people will talk to me about um, how I make it or why I'm making it. What they do is share their own experiences of wildlife with me. I've heard some gnarly stories, some beautiful stories, some really touching, sad stories. Um, And I think, I really think that's the art is that conversation where it's not about the work anymore, the physical object. It's about someone saying, oh wow, she's interested in animals. I'm interested in, in this part or this is something I've experienced. Um, you know, I've heard stories about someone facing a, a grizzly charging them in Alaska and how they survived that. Mm. I've heard beautiful stories of this old couple in Pennsylvania that will, would watch the flying squirrels kind of climb up their flagpole and, and fly down in the light uh, um, of this light at night. And so these beautiful things. And so, yeah, people often like don't confront me about the politics of it. They really just want to, in my experience, have just told me stories of their own connection with wildlife, which I find really revealing in a lot of ways. That's amazing. So a, a lot of your education on wildlife and conservation, where does that really come from? From conversations or were you um, going out and doing it yourself or were you taking classes for it? Like where does that knowledge come from? How have you gained it? Yeah, research, talking to people, books, yeah. Um, online research. Yeah, nothing formal, certainly nothing formal. And I, I do think part of that is, um, I do, I, I know ecology is part of that eco-political part, but I am really careful to understand myself that science as we know it is certainly a Western colonial yep. science, Yes. right? And so I think about wildlife management in with a negative point of view. And I think about, so it's, it's not to say anyone I've ever, t- I've talked to play people who are in the Western science world, that's not a pejorative on them at all. Um, but I try to keep that a little bit distant to leave conversation open for other things, right? To 
Um, so, so reading about, like, I would say like in grad school, I took classes on indigenous art of the Arctic and Northwest coast. I really wanted to learn more about an indigenous perspective, um, and their, their, you know, quote unquote artwork or the things they made and how animals played a role in that. And so I want to bring in a lot of perspectives. So, so my research, um, is a very wide net and I would say quite shallow, right? Quite, yeah. um, I try to learn a lot about a lot of different things. Um, and come at it from a person who's questioning their own existence first and their own place in the world first, um, rather than kind of putting it out there, what people should be doing or how they should be doing things. So uh, yeah. the more research that I do is really, um, you know, how animals look, how they move through the world, what, you know, like the Wikipedia kind of researches. Um, and then, of course, mythology, how people have seen them through storytelling, lens, things like that. Yes, that's amazing. I actually took classic mythology as a minor in college, and I definitely know that animals are a very big part of a lot of those stories. So that's it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah, definitely got us through how how and why you chose uh, Arizona um, for your for your grad school. Like, how was why did you choose to go there, and how was the curriculum? Yeah, a few a few reasons why I chose it. So so number one, um, they were a three year program, which I had been doing some research over that year that I took in between undergrad and grad school, and I had read a lot about three year programs. While you're usually paying more, of course, for more mm-hmm. time, it was really helpful to have three years so you can kind of get like your shitty work out of the way and then have another year to really work and then have your thesis year rather than like one year to like figure it all out and then your thesis year oh, wow. so Thanks. i was really thinking about that number one like what was going to be most beneficial for my development um at that point in my career and then um they did offer me a teaching position immediately so that reduced my um my tuition to like half of in-state and then we got paid like a a small amount so yeah. so money was certainly a big factor <laughs> um, in that <laughs> Uh, and then the third big thing art wise was what I had read about the Phoenix art scene was they were positioning themselves as, you know, Phoenix at the time, I think was like the sixth or fifth largest city in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but their art identity had not been solidified yet. It was still growing. It was still being understood. It wasn't like going to New York or LA where you might have to assimilate to what the hot new thing is that you could, um, make a mark for yourself in phoenix and that was really appealing to me um and then on just an interpersonal level um i had a friend that was already going out there for grad school and education um and a second friend who was going out there for a job so so someone who's an identical twin probably has a little codependency (laughs) um so having people that i knew i wasn't necessarily brave enough at that point to to leave so those four factors were a big um, and I can add in a fifth that I was done with winter. I was done with Northern Ohio winter. <laughs> I am yes. like not a snow baby. Like I, I was ready for the, the Sonoran desert. So, so climate friends time and, um, you know, the ability to really explore with a big city with a lot of resources. Yo, that's awesome. I heard that area is very, very, very beautiful too. So I'm sure that was awesome to look at every day. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to Arizona? No, I've been in Nevada and I've been to the okay. West California. I've never been in Arizona, but I've always wanted to go. If you ever do go, let me know. I have all the places you should go. But Southern Arizona, the Sonoran Desert, if you can get to the borderlands, it's just one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. Um, it has a piece in my heart. Like I love it in Southern Appalachia, but the Sonoran Desert is uh, pure magic. That is phenomenal. So 
So yes, yeah, so um, I'm now and add it to my travel list. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about like what you because obviously in grad school you gotta kind of dial in on something kind of specific. In a, in a way, so tell us about how you chose your thesis and how maybe what the challenges were and just the overall um, time there, how that was. Yeah, so a couple, so let's see. So Arizona was was a double-edged sword and I'm not gonna hold back on what I thought was negative, especially for possibly artists that are thinking about grad yes, school please. might be listening to this. Yeah. Um, you know, when I went out there, I had this whole different understanding of what grad school was. I was hanging out with grad students at Ohio State, and number one, they were paid well enough to like <laughs> not have to have other jobs. So, <laughs> so, um, and they they were like really just doing their own time, their own thing. So Arizona was a little bit different. Number one, they weren't nearly as experimental as I had been been playing with. I mean, I was in the drawing program at Ohio State and doing you know crazy shit, and it wasn't. No one was like, oh, that's weird. Um, but in Arizona, I was coming in and doing some more collage things, but I was taking them out of those books and I was starting to put them on the wall. I was starting to play with installation. I was moving yes. away from traditional drawing and painting, moving into how do I change my immediate environment. Um, and I got pushed back almost immediately from faculty being like, you're wow. not painting or drawing. Why are you here? And so much so that, um, that several faculty failed me in my 15 hour review. Um, I didn't fail my 15 hour review, but several failed me. And they said, you should leave this and reapply to the intermediate program if this is the kind of work you want to do. And I was just I was just blown away by that old school, traditional silo mentality where like, I mean, even at that point, some of the best art schools in the country had no disciplines. It was just a, a studio art major. You yeah. weren't you weren't expected to just be like painting or drawing in this traditional way. And so um my faculty, my painting drawing faculty didn't really like me that much. I think unteachable <laughs> was a word that was getting thrown around um, wow. in there. Uh, but uh, but I luckily had some really great friendships that I had built um, through that time. My friend Ronna Nemitz, I met her in grad school, and I always tell her she was worth my 60 grand debt <laughs> just meeting her. Um, but there were other things, too. So even though my faculty didn't quite get what I was doing or what I needed, where I needed to go, there was a few people that really saw me in my work. And so Julia Nond, who was in the photography department, I took some classes with her because um, she was doing the photography department at Arizona State was at the same time, like they had a lot of historical practices that don't exist anywhere else, mm -hmm. um, but they were also very experimental. And so it was nice to kind of get in with, with a couple of those professors, mm -hmm. hear some feedback. Um, she ended up sitting on my committee and then um, the director for the last year or two, Adrian Yenick, was really supportive of my work. And so even though I had I had kind of a trial by fire learning to defend myself, I finally found that lineage through um, a course called uh, what did they call it? They call it. Um, I guess they called it art and ecology. Mm -hmm. I might have to look that up, but oh, Julia Nan co-taught that with a um, with an art history professor. And, and so I like, kind of like found my people at that point, this idea of, of ecological art, you know, even land art with all of its problems, this idea of there was this whole subset of art that I didn't know about until I was, you know, 25, 26 years old. Awesome. Um, so that was the changing point. Now I had, um, now I had some firepower behind me to say like, well, this is what I'm doing. Um, this is what makes me feel like I'm important in the art world. And this was my, my niche. So that happened after I can back up just a little bit after I, this is another failure story. Yes. <laughs> um, after, we love those. after I had the, the, um, the almost failure of my 15 hour review, I really took time to think about like what, 
kind of that question I asked myself, like, well, what the fuck are you doing? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I did like the, the mind exercise of if you quit art school this year, what's your next? Like, if that was that was just like the, the mind game, like I quit, what do I do? And I was like, well, I'm going to look I would look up. I would try to get in the nonprofit wildlife world. I don't know what I would have offered at that point other than just straight up labor. Um, but uh, but that was kind of like, well, that's what I would do. So I actually started using that and, and did some research and found a group called the Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, and they're based out of Flagstaff, Arizona. And so I just sent an email to um, to the to the director, Emily Wren, and I said, hey, is there any sort of volunteering opportunities I might be able to do this summer when grad school is out? Because I had just had it with <laughs> where I was at, how I was being received. And I didn't even know what I was doing, right? So it's not even like their fears about me as an artist were unwarranted necessarily. Um, I was just kind of spinning. And so I, I went up and, and volunteered at the Grand Canyon Wolf Recovery Project. I spent some, some time in the summer at the Grand Canyon tabling telling people about the Mexican wolf, Yo. where they come from, what happened to them, that this is part of their ancestral range, um, all of those kind of facts and figures. And so I learned um, what it meant to talk about wildlife in public, number one. Um, but then Emily Wren gave me what was my second big break after War Room when she said, well, hey, like I, she had like an art minor, I think. And she's like, I know you're an artist. Would you want to do something with us for national it was either National Wolf Awareness Week or it was, um, there's a couple of different like wolf weeks that I, you know, I'm yeah. getting older and it doesn't stick in my head. <laughs> um, but anyway, there was some like wolf week coming up and she's like, do you want to do an artwork for it? Maybe a sculpture or whatever, maybe something. And I was like, oh, let's do some street art. Let's wheat paste. And yes. I, that was my public art project was nowhere. Um, now here, of course, depending on how you say it. And it was getting wheat paste, wheat pasting silhouettes of life-size Mexican wolves all over Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first um, kind of foray into public art. That was my first experience with kind of this temporary experimental public art. Um, and, and again, similar kind of weird failures. I have to give a shout out to my partner, Zach, who- Shout out <laughs> to Zach. Oh my God, we've been together. I think this year will be 14 years. I hope that's correct. But we had wow. just started dating at this point, like maybe, God, maybe a couple months, maybe like four months. And I was like, hey, I'm leaving for Flagstaff tomorrow. Like, let's spend the night. And I was like, actually, I need some help cutting out these wolf silhouettes. It shouldn't take that long. And then we can like do whatever, hang out. 10 hours later, oh all my. of them were cut out. And he, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, no. I was like, he's not going to drive up to Flagstaff. He's going to be like, fuck this. This is, I did not sign up for it to be an art assistant, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but, of course, he did help. He drove up. He, you know, and we're still together. He still assists me on multiple projects um, with some straight-up labor. But uh, so that was that first project, and we did it all ourselves. It was really fantastic. Me and Emily's um, partner at the time, they're married now, Um he uh, he helped me kind of go around and put these wolves up and we hit some really interesting moments, right? So so number one, um, the cops got called on us. So I got, oh. the cops um, came up to us as we were wheat pacing one of the wolves. Um, of course, they thought Nate was the artist. So <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> um, but so we were saying, you know, hey, we have permission. We have permission from all these building owners, whatever. I guess it was someone who was a, uh, they're like, well, it, they don't always have permission from the landlord, so that's how you have to, whatever. We were fine, it didn't really matter. 
Um, but that was the first kind of like, uh oh, you know, public art not is kind of more rogue art, even though we do get permission, we weren't just putting them up necessarily. Um, and then I heard a rumor it was this photography studio that called the cops on us because I don't know no. why, maybe we put it on their like alleyway. I was like, I don't have like, I do not know that for sure, but that was the rumor that we heard. Oh, um, no. But anyway, it's fine. I didn't get, they didn't take it down and go into the station or anything like that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that happened. Um, then I kind of, then I kind of got my first really big breakthrough on how people see wildlife based art and how that is parallel to how people treat wildlife. So this work was up for a week and then almost immediately people started tearing some of them down. Um, so I was going around and, you know, like wolves are contentious as much as some people be like, oh, everyone loves wolves, charismatic, charismatic megafauna, like people fucking hate them. It is like a, it is a very divisive topic. It's a very complicated topic. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's, um, so some were getting torn down. So it's like super dejected. I was just like, oh, this sucks. Like this sucks really bad. Um, because I wasn't in the mindset of like, wait for it because the failures are going to be the magic moments. And so um, you'll probably see them. There's, but they're probably still on my website. There's two wolves that are running, the paper wolves that are running along this, um, this uh, street. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember I was walking around photographing at the time. I still, still do, unfortunately, my own documentation unless I have someone with me or close to me. Um, I love to hire photographers and videographers. I'm not that very, I'm not very good at that. But um, <laughs> so I was doing my own photography, and um, I saw this couple walk past these two wolves, and they double, they did a double take, and they walked back, and I'm like behind this alleyway, like just watching them. <laughs> like, I was so cynical at that point. I again, not very confrontational. What, like, what the fuck was I really gonna do? I, but in my head, I was like, they're gonna, they're gonna fuck with them. They're gonna tear them down. They're gonna do something. And so I was just waiting. I'm like all nervous. And this really beautiful thing happened. And I, I've talked about this in lectures. I always kind of teary, so I might tear up. That's fine. That's um, fine. But, uh, but so they, they double back and they put their shopping bags down. And I see this couple get on their knees, and they both start like smoothing out the wolves that had been like crinkled. So they were like making this art back to what, you know, it originally was. And I, my heart just melted all this cynicism melted away. I was like, I was like, that's it. Again, that's this dichotomy. People treat wildlife art the same way they treat wildlife. Some people are going to eradicate and some people are going to restore. Yeah. And it was this big turning point. My heart was really full. I was really like, I was like, and this circles back to your question. This was the moment that I knew public art was going to be something that I thought would be something I would do for the rest of my career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because of these connections. And then even like weird little things we found um, after the fact that we were tearing them down and someone had, uh, I had, I was like, what is that? And the ear was torn, but it was still on the wall. And someone had, had taken a piece of their gum and like put it behind the ear that was ripped and put oh, it back. Oh, <laughs> so, like kind of gross, but kind of fixing it. So I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they tried. Kind of nasty, but kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like those were things where I was like that, and that became even even bigger than just the artwork people see. It was how it was treated, how it how it fared throughout its time being up. And so all of that mixes into where I think my work is like I couldn't even give you a percentage. Maybe like fifteen or twenty percent is about the object itself. Yep. Everything else revolves around you know the stories people talk about, how people treat it you know, or mistreat it. Um, but it's really fascinating. It opened up a whole new world of what being an artist could look like for uh... me. I so I went that. back to grad school with a lot of um, gumption and a lot of um, um, like ferocity that I, that I felt comfortable I was doing and, and I went forward with it. And so 
uh, my thesis exhibition at Arizona State were these wooden deer that were running through the gallery. Yes, encounter. Deer. Encounter, yep. Yes. And 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 in the in the statement about it, it was not only were those deer kind of entering and exiting this gallery space, it was a metaphor for my own departure from what I thought was gallery or museum life. Um, and I wrote about that, that these would, would take form out in public space. And then they did a couple years later um, with the public version of Encounter that were painted with the reflective um, road painting. So they kind of reflected car lights and things like that. And so, oh, so wow. yeah, those were all these really pivotal moments of like feeling dejected from grad school, going and, and doing something I thought I would love and then finding art found its way back in, the little tentacles kind of find its way back into it. Um, and then the ups and downs of making you know, temporary experimental public art. And I was hooked. It was, you know, very alluring and very addicting at that point. Um, That's so so awesome. that was my first public artwork was um, nowhere. Nowhere. Thanks Shut to the Wolf organization. And that's happened a lot. Like my first like awareness of me as an artist and giving me chances were from wildlife groups, not art organizations. Oh, wow. That's very mm -hmm. interesting. The, the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Yep. Nonprofit wildlife organizations have been pivotal and supporting my work because we did nowhere two years later defenders of wildlife picked up and they bought all my materials they housed me while i was down there um and then we put up you know 50 mexican wolves in the city of tucson um but at that point i also had 30 volunteers to help me we did this scavenger hunt it was super rad it was a little more high level um but yeah that was all defenders of wildlife um southwest yo shout out to you and i love that story mostly because it's a story of how you kind of had to pivot you know to go around what you think you need to do and like, let me go this route. And then it ends up being one of the best moves you can ever make for yourself. Um, yes. Having that panoramic view versus like a, you know, like a, a focus can be super beneficial sometimes. Yeah. And that's what I love about being an artist is that it's never linear <laughs> ever. <laughs> no matter what medium you're in, you're usually doing, you're doing this, you're swirling around and you're hitting brick walls and you're coming back going a different way and this is it's a beautiful life it truly is um yeah, that's 100 I'm, I'm curious so why is there 52 you have in flagstaff 50 tucson and then 113 in uh midlands is there like a mm -hmm. it reflects the wolf count that year okay of that of that year so you can see when they were 50 and then up to 100 and i'm not 100 percent sure where they're at these days but wow um, very interesting yep. so people can really see how big small that population really is um, that they could fit inside of a, a city, right? That's not very large. A hundred animals is not yep. big. Absolutely. But. And even, I mean, the, the show you have on now in Sika is, you know, about the red wolf. Um, where did the, is there a specific love for wolves that you kind of developed, you know, in these years? Yeah. Um, again, I think it comes back to, it would be easy. And, you know, people will get shit on for that idea of like, oh, these love wildlife, like tree hugger, animal hugger kind of stuff. I mean, I do love wildlife. I love the experiences I get with them, that kind of frisian, that kind of like um, you're feeling alive in that um, awe. But, but so predators, I think, are really interesting to me because they represent, you know, and you know, in the art world, that term sublime, right? Of and in the art sense, it's that feeling of awe and terror. Mm -hmm. And I think predators kind of represent that for me. Again, healthy respect and fear of wildlife. Um, but I think predators are the most political. They're the first ones that were moved out um, as, as the Western colonial structure moved in and started rampaging over people and over landscapes. Um, mountain lions, wolves, bears were just like fucking eradicated to make room for cattle, to make you know life easier for people that had been removing these animals from their homeland, having no idea that you could obviously like live with them more harmoniously yeah. um, or not caring that you could. Um, and so that 
So for me, it's very much not like, oh, I'm just an everyday like girl that likes wolves, some wolf girl. But I really think there's something to be said about predators. And yes, they might get a lot of like money from research or you know science research, or a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we'll give money to this organization. We love wolves. And um, that's all great, but what does that love mean? Where does that go when they still only inhabit like single digit percentages of their historic range? Yeah. You know, yeah. what does that, it's a performative love, right? It's a, it might not be an, an untrue love, but it's a performative one. And so the point of, of my work is to really take people to that like nth degree of, of focusing on the, the animals that would, they would fear that we would um, have problems with because in my, very humble, very learning centric opinion. If we can find ways to make wolves, wolves and mountain lions and, and bears and these predators part of our life again, everything else will trickle that trickle down their whole like trophic umbrella. will find yes. a way to come back. And so I think it, I think a big 30,000 foot view is um, if we can't save predators, we don't really have a chance to save anything else because they're still part of our life. We can't just pretend they you know, existed a long time ago. Like no, they can still, still be here. And yeah. Even though the red wolf is very small, very much at risk of going extinct again in the wild. Like that was my, I really wanted to focus on that one singular, you know, apex predator species that exists in such a small population and location right now. Absolutely. Good stuff. I, I was very curious about that. Even when you were setting up a sequel, I was like, why is she, why are wolves? But now that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going through the thesis year. I'm very curious of, because uh, obviously you had pushback as you went along, but obviously you found your way. So how was the thesis? Like, uh, what was your overall take on that? It was really great. I actually got a, a lot of great reception from some of the faculty that gave me pushback yes. in the beginning. I think yeah. finally seeing me put it all together and having some, you know, not only theory, but a little bit of a backbone behind it was beneficial. Um and and yeah so i left grad school feeling really confident and feeling really ready to to explore what was next for me um and then and yeah so the the deer i think got i that's actually where i got my first like random email i get them every once in a while um from (laughs) someone i don't know someone who has seen a show and and he um i think that line is so i think the screenshot is still on my website but he said something about um Oh no, that wasn't the deer. I did get one about the deer, about the, it was like a calm, peaceful environment that someone hadn't experienced that kind of art before. So that was kind of cool. Uh, the one I'm talking about was from a, a project where the wolves are in the museum and someone had said, um, hope is such a, a sad emotion I, that really resonated with me. Oh. Um, but yeah, so the thesis year was really good. So I didn't, I showed just, I showed the deer. I also had some, um, um, I did a couple other interesting things where I had images that people could flip through of the wolf project that I had done in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, so people could see that part of my public work starting to take form. And then I did this really experimental work with sometimes like this is the crazy thing. And I would remind all artists out there if you have a crazy idea, like just fucking ask. I'm shocked at how many people are like, oh, sure, we'll do that. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> all right. Like, yeah, I'm real. I'm like super, yeah, I'm, I think it's going to work too. Um, but so I had this idea. I was making this found poetry and these kind of silhouette images, just doing super basic reading on certain species in Wikipedia. Because again, my eyes are being open of like the Sonoran Desert. What else is here that I'm not learning about in school or didn't learn about growing up? And so I was taking these images, silhouetting them out, and then using the Wikipedia page and creating this found poetry. And I used the um, graduate student listserv. Somehow they let me like <laughs> email the main person and then everyone for a week um, got these email blasts of like a poetic <laughs> about a great blue heron or um, 
a, a desert hare or something like that. And so these, so this kind of digital world too, like a lot of what I think about tends to almost be like a design oriented or like commonplace like letters or emails and how can you infiltrate that with this wildness. And so I was doing all of that along with the deer sculpture um, for my thesis. So it's highly for me experimental and really pushed me as an artist for better, for worse, not to hone my craft in any one place, yes. except my thoughts. And then if I have an idea, I'm just going to go for it. And if it's a new media, I'm going to learn it or I'm going to find someone to collaborate with um, and, and write grants to make sure we both get paid and, and try to think about that. So I'm very expansive in that way. I don't I don't feel like my singular focus is this idea of, you know, wildlife and human centric space. But like, that's it. Yeah, Everything yeah. else is very open. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah, I think the show is pivotal. That's so awesome. And I, I want to touch on grant writing for a second. So were there classes on that? Or how did you learn how to write grants? <laughs> You're, this is great. Great question. These are all things I wanted to touch on. Um, another really fun failure story. Um, mm. No one taught us how to write in grad school. Um, oh, and if wow. any of my faculty are listening, like, will listen. Like, that's something that they should be doing. I don't care how fucking boring it is to them. Like, I left there not knowing how to write. Like I could write, I was always told, I was always told I was a good writer, but I was a really flowery writer. So I can tell you two things that really helped me become a good grant writer that hopefully people can um, pivot if they're listening to this. Yes. Um, so I, you know, my committee, you know, they just kind of read through my thesis statement, artist statement for like typos or grammatical errors. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, and then I had, what year was this? couple years later, I had applied to what was called at the time the Contemporary Forum Grant, and that was through the Phoenix Art Museum. Mm -hmm. And that was where a local artist could win like three grand to make work, and then it would show in the Phoenix Art Museum the next year. Wow. And um, I didn't make I didn't make the cut that first year. Mm -hmm. um, I did the subsequent year, but that first I didn't make it, but I must have gotten like top 12 or something because the, um, the was she the director? Was she the lead curator? Um, her name was Sara Cochran at the time. And she emailed me saying, could we have a studio visit? I'd like to meet with you. I know you didn't win the grant, but I want to get to know you because I, you know, I think it'd be beneficial. Yeah. And of course I don't have a studio practice and I didn't have a studio. <laughs> so I was like, let's just meet at the, T the Tempe Center for the Art because I had those wolf silhouettes up. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the vinyl ones. And so we met there and, and Sarah Cochran, if you picture, she's just like this statuesque, beautiful, like, Scottish accent, red, beautiful red hair. And she was this, such this like, demure woman and she's telling me right off of the bat she goes lauren your work is brilliant your writing is shit oh. and i was just like <laughs> i was like god damn i was like but i was like you're right it didn't even hurt my feelings i was just like i think you're right she's like and she she brought up blackfish and things she's like she's like you as a woman cannot be writing flowery poetics about wildlife she's like there is way more like hard things to talk about. There's way more sharp edges. And she brought up things like blackfish. She's like, you have to be emphatic and you have to be radical about yeah. how you think about it because your artwork is not reflected in your writing. And I really took that to heart. I was like, thank you. Like no one else, you know, and people, yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard to give a critique. It's hard to hurt people's feelings even if you don't mean to. So I know mm -hmm. why people are more gentle with it, but I really needed to hear that my writing was shitty. Um, at that time. So I was like, <laughs> all right. I yeah. was like, new new direction. I'm not going to work on art. I'm going to really start working on my writing because I'm not making objects to sell, but I need money. Mm. Um, so I knew grant writing was an option in writing for these these kind of like, you know, exhibition grants, whatever. And so I came back and I was like, okay, well, 
how do I become a good writer? <laughs> um, what are the steps? So I'm not in school anymore. I don't have anyone to just teach me for free, but I did. Um, so my twin sister, like I said, is a scientist. And at the time, she got her PhD pretty close to when I got my MFA. So, but she was, so she had just gotten out of school. And so science writing, this is the one thing I will say about like that kind of Western science, like mindset, the writing is so clear and mm. direct and how they, it, they use their own language that is not clear to most of us lay people, but like, but the idea of writing clearly, emphatically and with truth, um, you know, with backup was something I had never thought about. So I started asking my sister, I was like, could you give me some feedback on this grant? And I've never seen so much fucking red like marks on something in my life, like a track writing. I was like, wow, Kelly. And she goes, you're saying your work does this. She goes, but what's your proof it does this? And uh -huh. I go, oh, I don't have any. She goes, she's like, you're saying this, but it's a feeling. What's it doing? And I was like, oh, so I'm just seeing oh. all these like the clarity and like the backup. And I was just like, so like, I'm not in a place yet, but like, my God, my sister deserves like half my money at some point. <laughs> like, um, because I've won a lot of grant money with she, that she's edited, but also I've gotten, you know, over the years, I can know I've gotten better because she has less and less input. And in fact, that last grant I won to get the projections at Sika, this, the Culture and Animals Foundation grant. Yeah. Um, she didn't read it. So, so I won it on my, on my own finally. But, um, yeah. that, I would say find a friend who's a science writer who, or who writes grants already for a living because they can look at your work. And, and be honest that because and so many artists, like they do kind of wax the poetic, right? Which can be really beautiful in some instances, mm -hmm. but not when I'm trying to give you money. Yes. Um, and I've sat on panels before to give grant money too. And I, I saw a big difference. I'm like, wow, these, so a lot of people could benefit from just like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you going to achieve it? And it sounds kind of boring, but like, but it's beneficial. And, and what I would like to add with grant writing, a lot of artists don't like it. I, you know, I like, I like, um, I don't really participate in Twitter, but I definitely like lurk a lot. And yeah. I, you know, some of the art stuff, I'll see a lot of, I, unfortunately, a lot of people saying like, I never write grants. I never win. It's just, and it's, and yeah, there's a lot of sucky parts to it that, that could be better for a lot of people. But, um, but the reality is, um, we don't have anyone teaching us how to write we in don't. that way. Yep. That's a totally different way of thinking and writing about your work. And it can absolutely be taught. Um, and then the other thing I would say to artists is even if you don't win grants, the process, at least for me, has been so valuable. I'll write a grant for a project I'm just starting to think about just to give myself a deadline and to figure out, like, again, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what is this really? What can I do? What do I think I want to do? And the process of grant writing actually makes my art stronger, whether I win money or not. Yeah. Um, so just giving yourself that process and learning to you know, take a little bit of the ego hit when you don't get it, but but then that writing is ready for the next grant and the next grant and the next one. So it builds on itself. And so again, that idea of failure um, does not have to be a negative. It's just a step in a different direction or, you know, another step up. So yeah, okay. my grant writing came from Sarah Cochran telling me <laughs> my writing was shitty. And then my sister just being like, no, that's not grant writing. This is fucking grant writing. Um, that's why I learned. So shout out to Kelly. <laughs> shout out to Kelly 100%. It's funny. I just became, I mean, for somebody last like five years, um, aware of what grants even were. Because um, I didn't go to any traditional schooling, anything for photography. This is all self-taught. And then for my friends, like, you can be getting a lot of money for your work. You know that? I was like, no. <laughs> 
And then I've got a lot of resources on how the grants work and all that. And this has been very great. But I do need work on my writing. So I need to. Uh, I'll always read your grants for free, Daniel. Always let me know. I'll always give you tips. Oh, God, Lord. <laughs> yes. I, you know what? I need that feedback. I need that strict, harsh feedback. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to send you some sometime and see what you think. <laughs> yeah. And I always let people know I'm not, it's not you. I'm just being honest with the work. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah. Anytime. 100%. Yes. Well, thank you in advance for that. Yeah. Um, back to you. And obviously you graduated from Arizona State. Shout out to you. Um, so what was that next step? And what were you thinking? Like, what was the, did you have any plan in mind? I know you're doing, you know, doing teaching now, but like, what was, mm-hmm. what was the um, plan? The Free Pizza Podcast is proudly sponsored by Lucky House MFG. Lucky House is an eco-friendly screen printing and design studio with over 10 years of experience in the industry. They offer high-quality custom printing services, including apparel printing, graphic design, promo goods, and embroidery. Visit www.luckyhousemfg.com to get a quote and to learn more. This is Connor Oster, and you're listening to the Free Pizza Podcast. Yeah, the plan at that point was to get a job. I had already watched some friends struggle with that adjunct life, even though that's what I'm living right now. I'm Mm -hmm. in a better position to have that life. Um, But right out of grad school, I wasn't in a position to not have health insurance, to not um, know where my money was coming from, to not know if I was in class. So I got a job teaching. um, I took a job really naively at this charter school that... Mm. Two months in, I was looking for my next job because <laughs> um, it was really not good. Um, and, and I'm sure good charter schools exist, but I'm not sure what mm. those are. <laughs> um, very <laughs> ideological um, in a lot of ways. And so, so I, uh, so I took this job at a charter school, and then I was like, "Oh, this sucks." And then they lied to me. I thought I was gonna be teaching some high school classes, and then all of a sudden, I'm teaching like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, which I was like, no experience. I was like, dude. It made me like a monster. <laughs> it was just, I had to teach like a play. I had to teach handbells. I don't know how to read music. I was like, this is insane. What? But I'm just like faking my way through this like job <laughs> so that I could have money to be an artist. I always knew with the kind of work I do, I need to make money and be an artist. Like not a lot of money, but sometimes I need to support myself. I need to build a, you know, put project stuff on a credit card if I have to and feel like I can get paid off at some point. Yep. Um, and so... Then I then a bunch of people from that school were doing a mass exodus to a place called Phoenix Country Day School. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I had some people from my previous school that were working there and kind of gave my name to um, the head of the upper school at that time. And he he ended up hiring me part time. And then the kind of old ass art professor or art teacher ended up not wanting to, to teach his like Jack's new way of thinking or work with me. So he quit. And then I just got I ran the upper school for a couple of years. Um, wow. With not a lot of teaching experience in that way. And, um, but it was really great. Jack was really great. Um, the students were cool. You know, it was like a rich kid school. So to some level, like mm-hmm. it's bizarre in its own way. Um, but I had some resources and, and I taught like, um, you know, seven classes <laughs> throughout the, the two semesters. Um, but then wow. we brought on a couple more people. Um, Lisa Tolentino, my collaborator for the Light Intrusions, um, she came into PCBS, and then my friend that I went to grad school with, we hired him um, in sculpture. So between the three of us with MFAs and PhD, um, we kind of ran what we considered like a really high-end community college at the high school level. And we had these really sky-high dreams of curriculum development. We, What we did there, I was really proud of. Um, were we able to get the kind of push we wanted to for the arts? No, because we were just... Of course, kind of jumpstone. I was like, "Look at the art program! Look at the art program!" But then the minute Lauren asks for money, 
um, I kind of get this, like, I wasn't supposed to see this email, but I saw it. <laughs> someone showed me something else. Um, and the head of the upper school at that time, which Jack had left, um, said something along the lines of, I don't see what money has to do with creativity. Oh. I was like, oh, I won't be here. I'll be now. Now I start looking for my, my next step. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to keep being used as this really great thing um, that wasn't getting supported yep. <laughs> um, for materials. And so anyway, um, so taught there. And then at some point, I um, I was starting to think about what my next steps were. Financially, it was still a pretty good paying gig. Um, but my partner, actually, Zach, got an option for some contract work in Michigan. Oh. And I wasn't super pumped to like move back to that weather, but mm. it was a it was a big deal for him at the time. And it was a lot of money to where I wouldn't have to necessarily work. Um, and so I could really take that moment because I was really pushing myself as a full-time teacher and trying taking this, launching this art career that I was getting busier and busier. And I was starting to worry about my time management. Um, and so we just ended up saying like, let's just do it. Let's just take the leap. I'll be closer to home for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I had a friend in Chicago. Um, and so we, we kind of did, we took that risk and moved to Michigan for a couple of years. Um, then when his contract was up, we that's how we decided to go to Knoxville. We had to go back to Arizona, but Arizona was so expensive. And Kelly had had been here teaching. Um, I can't remember if she had gotten tenure before we came, but it's close around that time she had gotten tenure. So this was probably going to be pretty much it for her. And I hadn't lived with my twin in like 17 years. So Dang. I really wanted to live down here. And, and luckily, Zach's a mountain biker and a cyclist. And like he fucking loves Knoxville. Like it's he loves it here. So it's kind of uh, best of both worlds for us. That's amazing. So we what, moved around a little bit. <laughs> what year was that? Did you move to Arizona? I moved to Arizona. I mean, I moved to, I'm sorry, moved to Knoxville. I moved to Knoxville. We moved to Knoxville in um, 2019. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 20, 2019, like right before the pandemic started. So we kind of got here and then we got locked in. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. That's that summer before it got really big is when we moved. Oh, wow. So yep. between, um, let's see, Knoxville and uh, Michigan, what works did you complete in Michigan that you were really, really proud of? So Michigan was when, when I started thinking about this exhibition at SICA, actually, I had just gotten done. I had to fly back for a couple of exhibitions in Phoenix still. Um, I had just gotten done with that, uh, the border wall work, which is a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in Michigan, my, my goal was to really set myself, like I needed to start looking for grants more. I was like really trying to figure out who I was at this point in my art career. Yes. And so I was able to just take like an adjunct, little adjunct gig. I actually ended up teaching at a women's prison, um, art history wow. in, um, in, and closer to Ann Arbor. It yeah. wasn't close to Ann Arbor. Where was it? Cause we were South, like we were right above Toledo. Uh, but anyway, I taught art history at this women's prison because I thought that would be useful because it was a whole shift from teaching like privileged rich kids. Yes. Um, and they were the best students I've ever had. Um, these women were just, and some of them were lifers. Some of them were going to get out. Some of them had dreams for the future. And I've never had students work so hard and be so, like it, it also shifted my perspective. I mean, I, how how can a person that's never been to a prison understand it? But being able to walk through there, me having to get like pat downs and have to go through security, um, you know, us having to, you know, the arts are always a little more open. I'm willing to talk with people more than maybe I was supposed to. But like, I was able to to let these women do some art projects in our history classes that like blew my mind. Like we I had them make these kind of maps of their life and the 
the one that really struck me was a woman who was drawing, they had this big wall of um, razor wire and she's like, sometimes I just like to sit in front of it. And even though I know it keeps me out, she's like the way the sun hits it at this hour is mm -hmm. a really beautiful space. And it like, kind of, it's heartbreaking, but, but gorgeous. And so it really, it really changed me. And, and it's something that like, I keep trying to think about like my trajectory of, cause teaching is hard. Like yes. teaching is hard and there's a big exodus from academia and I'm finding, I'm feeling burnout, but then I'm like, wow, I wonder if there's like, or if someone, if, if I could help start, if there's any prison programs here, cause that was still one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done as an educator um, was teach those women. That is, so, mm -hmm. that is so awesome. that was a, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a thing that I did up in Michigan that was not so much artwork, but was a very helpful to my art education understanding. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I started thinking about, um, yeah, I had been getting, that was my turning point mission to start thinking about more conceptual work too, because I had been getting traction with some of the projection projects, the big black and white projections, the animal land. Yes. Um, that I did with Kendra Sollers that had been getting a lot of traction that was going really well. But, but I don't know if like, I just have some fucked up mindset, but like when things start going really well, I'm like, well, how can I push in a different direction and keep, you know, I could have probably just stuck with that one project and still done it and been just as, you know, formidable and made money. But I really, wanted to keep pushing what I thought art looked like and especially what it looked like in terms of, of wildlife um, strategies for cohabitation. And so that's where I started thinking of, you know, the idea of, of eye shine and I was getting these like reflective beads and thinking about like, you know, animals and their eyes shining back at us. And, um, and that's actually where, when Wendy Earl, who's no longer at Sika, but she reached mm -hmm. out asking me to think about what I wanted to do. Um, I had the time and the money to go spend a week up at the Wolf Conservation Center in New York. So I, I drove from Michigan to New York for like four or five days and recorded their red wolf howls and filmed their red wolves and talked to the, you know, the, the people who ran the facility on, and I really just learned more about red wolves, um, at that point in time as well. And so that's where the gears started turning about, well, what do I want to do? Um, there and simultaneously while i was thinking about sika i got the opportunity to do a residency exhibition at juniata college in in huntington pennsylvania so wow. that was a big project i had worked on and that was my and i think i think they thought maybe that um i feel bad sometimes where i'm like well i know people like the projections but i really wanted to take an opportunity to do some some crazy shit to try something new and so at that point, I was thinking about what we see in the city. And so as I would drive, we would drive up to Ann Arbor to, to hang out and, and have fun. And and I would see like those moving message boards. And so I was like, what if those were like, instead of advertising for products or sales, they were talking about wildlife that existed in yes. this space. And so that's what I proposed for Juniata College. And they like, again, I cannot believe sometimes the money I get not that I get it personally, but like I get for materials <laughs> yeah. um, to do work that like just has no guarantee that it's going to be cool or look good or whatever. And so we, we bought these five message boards of different sizes and they start off in the gallery kind of waxing poetic about certain species. I was doing a bunch of research on species of, of the Huntington River Valley and reading some research. Um, so that one was more expansive. I didn't touch on just a single species there. I touched on all, everything I could. Um, wow. And so they were just kind of telling these stories like, you know, one of the the poetics, um, there's a this, I don't think it was a real fireplace, whatever, it was like a mock fireplace or real fireplace in the gallery. Um, 
and I'd put in there like a bobcat's giving birth in the fireplace and just trying to think of these little vignettes of thought of like, um, how could I use words to insinuate cohabitation? And I had just gotten off reading this really great poem called Sometimes a Wild God. Um, I recommend it. You can find it online. Oh, sure. Um, yes, yes. And, the, and, the, and so in Sometimes a Wild God, the, the poet kind of talks about these animals coming into their home and like birds singing from a tea kettle and, and a stag taking a seat at the bar. And so I was thinking about that um, is, is inspiration for this work about how to use words to, to, to talk about a very localized vicinity. You know, I had a, a message board sitting in one of the, um, I think, or no, they, they would use, they also use some of my poetics on these digital displays. So they weren't just my message board. So the school had all these like flat screens. And so sometimes these things would come up like, you know, a black bear sitting at the table or something like that, or foxes jumping under whatever food carts. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was a really, for me, a radical change for my work about and moving away from the visual. Cause at that point I was also thinking about commodification and I was thinking about, well, how can I make work about wildlife that doesn't always use their body? Um, and especially now I think more, I've never really been in a position financially um, but this gallery I just started working with is we're going to give a percentage of anything I sell to the organizations that like made whatever project happen. So hopefully oh, some of that money goes directly yes. back to the literal animals that I've worked with. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so part of that restriction of the visual of the animal was me thinking about like, what if it was our mind that created it and not necessarily like having to go somewhere or use an animal body. Um, so I was playing with those notions at that time. So in Michigan, I was getting really like <laughs> radicalized in terms of like, how far can I push art that doesn't necessarily look like art, but again, pushing that idea of the thought process of of your your experience with animals being the actual artwork and whatever I do just being the catalyst. Yo, that is such a awesome take on all of that. That's, that's really impressive. <laughs> I had a lot of time to think, so it was really yes. big for me. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a good moment to kind of sit back, take the, you know, the, sometimes the stress of leaving the workforce, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, especially as a woman. Um, but it was, it was really good for me to take that time and to do that project. And, um, and Catherine, who, who's the director of the Juniata College Museum of Art was just amazing. Just one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with. She worked so hard and, and we really pushed this, this project into a realm I didn't think it could go. So, right. um, so that's what I did in Michigan. And then, then I, well, I had worked on that while I was in Michigan. And as soon as we moved to Knoxville, I went up for my residency for like 20 some days or something like that. So it was all around that same time frame. The building happened in Michigan. And then when I moved here is the execution. Wow. That is that's phenomenal. I mean, what I love about this also is that you also shed light on everyone that kind of help you along the way. You know, all these names and these nonprofits and these people who's give you grants and you've you've you shed light on all these people because I mean they all are very important to your story. Um, it takes a village to raise an artist, and again, any artist who talks about themselves, I it's hard for me to kind of like be impressed by that because I think they're lying. Yes, <laughs> no, they are lying. And I am not. Yeah, I am not um, a self-made woman in any way, I'm not a self-made artist. I only can do this through the help of collaborators and filling in the gaps of my own knowledge and my own ability. Um, yeah, they're the they're the most important part of this in a lot of ways. Absolutely, and how, how did it feel seeing your work on the side of the, the I guess in Grand Rapids, the big mm -hmm. projections? How does it feel seeing For something so larger than life, like just your work on that huge ass building? Like how'd that feel? It was really amazing. I was lucky my parents drove up to see it. Oh. And my dad reflected that actually. He goes, you did that? 
And yeah. I was like, I did. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> um, I get in awe of myself. And I think artists have to keep falling in love with themselves over and over again. Because yeah. any artist, and you, you probably experience this when you work on something long enough, you're like, this sucks. Like, this is terrible work. Yeah. It's, it's not smart. It's not forward thinking. It's not good looking. Like, ugh. And then it goes into existence and you're like, wow, like this is good. I did a good job. I worked really hard. And so, yeah, I kind of constantly get in awe of myself and fall in love with my work um, all over again. And that was the Owls in Grand Rapids were that moment where I was like um, very, very thrilled to see that come and in, come into place. Yeah, absolutely. It's just cool with just knowing what got you there. You know what I'm saying? To all these moments it's like, man. This got me here. That got me here. Moving here got me here. Like taking those risks. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest thing all artists, and I've talked to so many artists on this show, just it's always a risk. You know, always taking risks and leaps to just to see what will happen. And it usually it works out. So it does. You're exactly right. The risk taking, you know, these are low risk. We're not doing surgery. We're not sending anyone into the <laughs> orbit. Um, yeah. It's it's only maybe a risk to our ego, right? And as yeah. soon as we let go of that to an extent, the more you work with what you do, um, the more you stand behind your work, whether other people like it or not. Now, I'm sure, I, you know, get a negative review, it's gonna hurt my feelings, but if I'm doing the work I want, it's only just gonna make me think, well, that's their perspective, and either I take that and and help help myself with that, or it doesn't pertain to me because it's not my audience. Um, if you make work for yourself, if you make the work, I make the work I wanna see in the world. I When I ideate something, and I think to myself, if I stumbled upon that somewhere, if I think that's fucking cool, then I'm going to execute it yeah. because I have to make work for me um, as a creative. And, and yeah, man, taking risks, I can't I can't stress enough because they're not. Yes, financially, they can be risky, but like you got to hedge your bets and, and you have to um, you have to bet on yourself Yeah, more yeah. often than not. Absolutely. Lauren dropping gems. I better be listening. <laughs> be listening. Um, so I'm going to get to Sika. And obviously you've done, I tell everyone, go look at Lauren's site. The CV is insane. All the work. All the, I'm skipping a lot, but for the sake of time, uh, I want to get to the to the um, exhibitions up right now because it's up now in Winston-Salem at Sika. Um, so tell us about, um, actually, let me go back to my notes because I want to make sure I say it correctly. Old Red, I know where uh, they're at, Dwellis. Um Tell us about that exhibit. I've seen it, of course, but like, tell us about just the idea. I know Wendy hit you up about it. Um, the idea to bring it to life. Yeah, and so this is a good. Ex this was a good experience for me, and like, trying to think how I put this in a way that's that's honest but also kind is that this was the first. This was what what to me was the biggest exhibition of my life. Um, and things kind of, they didn't fall apart, but they I had to adapt really quickly to a new situation. And so when Wendy and I first were ideating about, you know, after my first site visits to Sika, um, we had these really big things planned. I had not only the the, the projections mm -hmm. um, of the Red Wolves, not only the light intrusions, um, the howling came separately because what we were talking about doing was trying to find, when I first visited Winston-Salem and I saw like, this is an art scene, I'm like, what does that mean? And she said that it was more about performing arts, you know, conservatory, yep. singing, performance, mm -hmm. dance. I was like, how interesting. And I really wanted to engage the community. That was something I always told myself when I sh strangely got invited back into the museum world, which I had never thought I would be a part of into like this white wall gallery. I always thought like, I will never do a museum exhibition without a public component um, that, that tries to reach out either extending their own community tentacles or actually forcing them to have community, community reach in the first place. 
um, because museums, even though they're public, right, they're not like welcoming to everybody. They're not always um, in, in the parts of the city where people can can get to them, every kind of person. And oftentimes people feel like off put yep, <laughs> by the, the tone of a museum. Um, and of course, I think Sika had a good experience, had a good like connection with the community from what I understood. But um, what Wendy and I were trying to do was make these connections. And we had some things in place already that, that um, kind of left with her. But um, we wanted to do these on-site performances where I had built this whole packet, this Red Wolf packet. Of, I had gathered all this information, all this inspiration. I thought people might, they can always do their own research, but I wanted to give them something that like, you know, a performer, a student, a singer or whatever, like these are all these things about Red Wolves. What would you do if this was kind of the assignment or you could take it and run with it and you're <sighs> going to do these performances um, on the grounds that would have been like, you know, what if people, one of my, like one of my things I threw out there is like, what if we could get singers that, their whole goal was to try to mimic red wolf howls and bring oh. them in different locations. And so the sound component that I have there was the second tier of what I had originally planned for was human voices mimicking that of a, a red wolf and how eerie or beautiful that certainly might sound. Um, bringing in dancers, bringing in performance artists, bringing in spoken word poets, anything, anything and everything. We we're going to try to build this coalition of like, and again, most of that, when I think about teaching other people about the things I'm learning. Um, it doesn't necessarily come through the art objects. It comes through my collaborations. Everyone I talk to at Sika knows about Red Wolves now. Everyone that I would have worked with as a performer would have learned about Red Wolves. And so yeah. part of my reach and collaboration is also this education component um, from my perspective on, on the landscape that they may already know, may know more than me or may not know anything, um, but kind of putting that out there. So that was one thing that I regretfully wasn't able to accomplish with this exhibition was really bringing in a huge community component that I was hoping for. Yeah. Um, but those are things you just have to, you know, you have to pivot. Like you said, you have to adapt, Go you have it. to be resilient. And so, so then I brought in the howls that were going to be on speakers. So, so cool. Still, so interesting. Um, yeah, so badass. Yeah. So badass. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I had, I had a grander vision and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's healthy for an artist to have this really grand notion and then to come back to earth because life is real and, and things happen that are 100% out of your control um, and you still have to do your best with it. And so that was kind of, that was the one thing. And, and I did want to, I did want to put those message boards around Winston-Salem, get, get some business on board to have them, yeah. um, which I still might do some outreach myself. I'm just limited, um, you know, and Cliff Dossel has been great, but I know he's just kind of spread so thin. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I scrapped it because I'm like, I cannot, I already work curators and directors really hard as is. I was like, I can't ask him anymore. He's already doing so much for me, you know, picking up some things from Wendy. Um, so, so I scrapped a couple components that I really wanted there. Um, to really hone in and then do what I <laughs> what I was really hoping to do, and it, it, I still think it works. I'm still happy, 100% happy yes. with it, um, and and things just change. And so um, the same thing with the light intrusions. We had been Lisa and I had been planning, and Lisa wrote and, and won a grant um, to fund that project from the Arizona Commission on the Arts. Um, and we had measured everything to fit actually in the Overlook Gallery where you saw it that day where we were installing. Yeah. Um, but then there was some curatorial mix up and they needed that space for Beverly McIver's ex exhibition, which a couple of people I know from grad school are in it. So I was kind of really excited. Oh! I was like, wow, we're all going to be there together. Um, yes. Melissa Button and Claudio Dicochea have, have worked in there, I think. Um, fantastic people. But um, so we ended up, I ended up getting kind of a call from um, Jared saying we have to, 
we have to slightly change glucose glucose and then um, the slight change ended up being moving 40 meters of led lights to different locations that they weren't planned for so gotcha. there are some things again i had to kind of take the hit of like i get it i'm not trying to like start a fight or try to like it, again these things just happen everyone's human i can be as as you know upset as i want to be on a personal level and then i can just be a realistic person that needs to put work out in the world um so lisa and i kind of um, reconsidered what we were doing when we came back for the opening we actually walked around the cliff and found other locations that they they fit so if you were there recently um you saw some of their new locations yeah yep. so i think they look cool i think some of them the one like going into the potter gallery looks one of my favorite ones that one looks really cool um and then some don't fit the way i want but again like this is just shit you learn and i have always told myself I respect museums, but I'm always going to use them as a learning platform and an experimental platform. And, mm -hmm. and if I'm experimenting in a museum for the first time, like that's what they're used for. And, and it doesn't always have to be the perfectly it comes back to craftsmanship. I'm just not a craftsperson. It's not going to be as beautiful as I might love it to be, um, but it's a start. And, and like, my goodness, that's like the most important thing to do is to give yourself a launch pad. And so even though I went through some changes with with Sika that were unexpected, I think that I've all, I've come out um, again a, a more elevated artist, someone who is able to kind of roll with changes and 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 just get the best out of it because that's all we can do for ourselves. That's it. Um, I'm just happy to kind of be there with other people I know and and I and I hope people still um, get to experience that work in that that new way. And I like that they're spread around. I I love my only regret that them being spread around is that I wish some could have been longer, right? Or yeah. like fit the space a little bit better. Um, but that's, that's a thing I can't change in the moment, but I love the idea of people moving through and seeing these red lights and whether they've read the text or read it later, um, that that idea of a red wolf in their immediate location comes to play. So, um, that's overall, awesome. I'm really happy with what's happened and, and I'm yeah. going to be back in April for another projection event, hopefully, but to do like a, a little like fireplace chat, um, with Sika. That would be awesome. Definitely keep us up to date with when that is, because I, I would love to see it. Um, okay. Love to see you and be a part of that, because that would be super cool just to meet up and, uh, you know, face to face again. Because uh, Oh, yeah. I yeah. need to get to see the projections in person. So I'd love <sighs> no, to. I'm, I'm trying to figure out right now. My goal now is to figure out where we're going to do them. Uh, what would be the best next location? So hopefully we get to come out and do that. I'll be there for like three nights or something. So jam pack yeah. it. <laughs> we're gonna make that. We're gonna make that work. I swear. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to talk about before we bounce out of here the Jaguar thing you did in Mexico. Can you just talk about that kind of briefly on how cool that was? Yes, that project came into being literally for my own learning. I again, you're this suburban white kid that thinks about things very um not broadly i yeah. guess and i didn't know jaguars lived in the united states i didn't know they lived all the way to louisiana maybe up you know through missouri up to like the canyon like the jaguars lived here jaguar not here not where i am and you know not where you are but um the jaguars were roaming you know northern mexico and and, and southern part of the united states um how would we know that completely eradicated 100 no percent eradicated from not just um who's the artist name he did the uh he did a project called the lost bird project there's a documentary on it that's really interesting oh wow um i can't remember his name right now but he said that forgetting is another kind of extinction and i i think i thought about that a lot and that like i didn't even know what i didn't know wow and so i wanted to do some jaguar work i again was just off of animal land kind of taking off and so i wanted to do something that was in color 
Um, I wanted to do something that utilized pieces from the Northern Jaguar project, who I was lucky enough to work with through an animal land installation um, that we did in, in Tucson. And, um, and these are one of those things where you just have to bet on yourself. I remember, like, what did I, how did this work? I'm trying to think. So I knew I wanted to project on the border wall. I knew I wanted to project trail camera images from Northern Jaguars in Mexico bi-nationally onto the US-Mexico border wall to talk about, obviously that work, uh, that, that construct is um, one of the shittiest things in the world for people. And it's also shitty for wildlife and for rivers and for the ecosystem. And, and I wanted another option for people to buy in because the unfortunate truth of the world is some of the most racist people um, really like wildlife. So if I can trick them yeah. into tearing down that fucking wall because they like wildlife, then like it's, it's something at least I can try to do. Um, so, but we also again wanted to bring community in. So I'll back up until that part because I have a lot more people to, to think for that project. But so I knew I wanted to project on the, the border wall and um, I, I told this to people and I knew you could project on like rusted metal. I hadn't really tried it yet, but I was, I was writing these, was I writing grants for this? I was just talking and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this projection on the US-Mexico border wall. I had no idea how, like, <laughs> if I would even be able to. Um, so I really started saying like, well, how do I do this? Let me back up. And I had um, briefly known um, Janae Sanchez, um, who does fabulous work. You should look into her work. Mm. She went to grad school with me for a little bit. She left um, to have her first baby and then came back and finished at some point. So we didn't really cross paths a lot. But I always knew her and, and on social media, we knew each other. Yeah. Um, and she had started this project. Her husband got elected mayor of Douglas, um, Arizona, which is a borderland town. Wow. And he was an artist and she's an artist. And um, she started this project called um, Border Arts Corridor, BAC or Bach. Mm. Um, and nice. there she connected with artists on both sides of the, the border. She had connections with um, Agua Frieta as well. Um, to bring artwork that brought those two sister communities together. Those communities depend on each other. Douglas and Agua depend on each other. And so she was showing that through art projects. And so I sent an email to Janae saying, I have this idea. Um, I'd really like to get the ball rolling. Cause she had connections with Border Patrol because they all worked, everyone worked together to make these things happen. Um, and then, so I got the go ahead from, and then the Northern Jaguar project paid for this whole thing. Um, but so they gave me a number of wildlife images from their trail cameras in Mexico. It, we focused a lot on jaguar, but I also had images of coyote, mountain lion, um, ocelot, other species that were blocked by the, that are blocked from their migration corridor um, by the wall. And, she, and um, so Janae introduced me to a couple of groups um, in Mexico. So uh, Casa de la Cultura mm -hmm. was a group that they do free art lessons for students um, in Agua Prieta. And so I worked with uh, with Laura there, and the Northern Jaguar Project had an education crew that they worked with, Conciencia. Um, God, I'm gonna sound dumb. Um, no, no, <laughs> you're good. You, it's on the website. I have it all on the website. <laughs> so Conciencia are two two ladies that do education on wildlife in the borderlands and, and all over Mexico, and so this big team, Jaguar Project and their their connections, Janae and her connections. And then and then um, and Janae's husband had all these political connections. So what that work was, and people know it from the image of the border wall, but it was so much bigger than just the projection. So um, so Northern Jaguar Project bought me two projectors. Wow. I hired Kendra, um, my collaborator for Animal Land, to come help me with that project. 
Um, so she was going to run the projection on one side and, and do the videography and photography with, with our Sony camera that we had. And then I rented one from a friend um, that Janae took on the Mexican side. Um, and then, so we had these, as soon as it got dark, we had these projections going and then communities from both sides gathered. And then we had um, people speaking on both sides and then everything was translated from English to Spanish, Spanish to English. Wow. Um, so they were conservation leaders talking about the importance of wildlife and culture. And against the wall, we had politicians talking about how the wall affects um, you know, their, their commerce, their trade, their community, people live in both those cities and work in the other one. And it's, you know, what a hassle to go through border patrol. Um, and then even those things too, those are things I think about too, in, in the complexity of it all, you know, I had to meet with border patrol agents to get approval for this. So I drove down to Douglas, I sat in the hotel, um, and waited for them and these fucking gigantic, three gigantic guys walk in armed to the gills, you know, they're border patrol from the green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God, like, okay. And like, again, it was really interesting in that number one, how quickly they're like, yeah, yeah, if you're not touching the wall, yeah, just do the projections, it's fine. Like yeah. they move past that so quick. And then they start telling me the stories, their own stories of wildlife. And again, I don't want to um, wax poetic about border patrol or <laughs> agents of that, because there's so many problems. Um, and I'm not trying to say these particular ones are any better than any others. Um, but from this very myopic wildlife art point of view, they started talking about this this mating pair of um, great horned owls that come nest at the Border Patrol station every year. Yeah. And every year they come back and everyone radios everyone and they stop doing whatever maintenance work in that area so that those two birds can like have their nest. And again, you hear it and then immediately you're like, like, but you're doing this shit to people and you're like, you're waxing poetic about these birds and you're being, you know, I don't know if these ones are shitty to people. I don't know them individually, but like, that's where this politic, politic and ecology come together of like, we have to have these conversations that are so challenging and not so black and white yes. as, as we might want to say, or not so, you know, pure as we want to think because, you know, all these groups work together. Um, and in fact, the second story of border patrol is like, um, I'm sitting there getting ready. I'm like, Nervous as shit. I'm about to have a New York Times interview <laughs> that I'd never done. I'm like two margaritas in to like calm my nerves. I'm on site, getting ready to, I'm like doing test, test lighting for a couple interviews. And I see Kendra grab my phone and pick it up. And I'm looking at her face and I'm like, What's and then she comes up. She's like, don't panic. She goes, the Border Patrol agents don't know that you're supposed to be here tonight. Something got mixed up. Oh. And I was like, what does that mean? We're all here. We're all going. And she's like, they said it's fine. They said, just don't get in the way of the cars. And I was just like, oh, just like all these things, nothing. I'm telling you, if there's any installation artists listening, like anything with technology, anything with groups, I have not once, I've never once had installation go smoothly with no pop-up problems. Something always arises. <laughs> always be ready. For oh, the unexpected. my God. Um, but it went off without a hitch. It was really beautiful. I got to have these incredible converse, these fucked up conversations through the bars, like literally my face, like through the bars, talking to people in Mexico. Um, but it was so beautiful how we got brought together with this art project and what, you know, Janae and her team were able to pull off and, and what we were, you know, that night it became like, that's where I learned none of this is about me. Like as an artist, I don't like to necessarily say like, I do this and I do that. Like I'm here doing things, but like, if all I can do is highlight all the people doing the better work, the real work, um, the hard, the harder work, I guess, like that's what I want my art to do. I hope when people look at those border wall projections, they 
they don't think about me. I, there's so many other things I want them to think about, the politics of the borderland, the you know human rights and environmental rights violations that, that the US government consistently breaks to make that happen. Um, and the way we demonize people that are people. Um, yeah. Yeah. Literally just like us. Um, um, but these beautiful things. And we also had um, education on both sides. So people could learn about jaguars and borderland species in English and in Spanish on the Mexican side. Um, and yeah, and then we did kind of the unthinkable because one of the, I think one of the speaker systems didn't work. So even though you're not allowed to do this, we were pa passing a microphone back and forth between no way. the United States and, and Mexico. Um, yeah. That is, that's mm -hmm. awesome. So it's like this real metaphoric moment of conversation and voices coming together. Um, you know, not even necessarily about, it certainly supports the Jaguar and wildlife, but it is about like tearing the wall down. Like that wall does yeah. not, in my opinion, it should not be existing. And so yeah. um, that work was certainly my highest political, especially in location. Um, the location was highly politicized, but easily the most beautiful location I've ever worked in culturally, visually. Yeah. Um, so important. That is... Uh... I'm glad we got to end it on that note. I'm glad I asked about that, that about that because I almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what a journey. And your journey's not over yet. That's the best thing. So what are you doing now? And tell us, maybe give us a little, you know, peek into the future of what you're working on, if you can. Yeah, I can. Yeah, sure. I, um, you know, I got this, I met, um, strange enough on Twitter, this lawyer, her name's Karen Bradshaw. Mm -hmm. Um, she is at ASU and she does property law. She wrote this really great book that she sent me called um, Wildlife as Property Owners. Mm -hmm. Very straightforward book about and her house and, and her house is um and certainly in like a really a really privileged part of Arizona, but she's the first property in the country to be put in a trust for wildlife. So anyone that buys her house in the future has to has to go by this trust, like no fences, no poison certain rules of like living within the limits of wildlife. Um, so she talks about the idea of wildlife in your backyard, what we can do um, to help with these corridors, because corridors are are not going to be and should absolutely not come from land grabs, right? We shouldn't be pushing people off of land like we've done for conservation to have wildlife. And so, you know, she, she does a lot of research with indigenous groups as well of like, like, you know, living with wildlife, right? People that are, that are not settlers. Um, this idea of like property is mine and no one else comes in. And and she had, I had a really beautiful, I did some research. I listened to one of her talks um, because I was kind of, from my understanding, brought up to think property rights is not a great thing, that it is this kind of like not ideal thing. Um, but it's in the perspective of what you mean by property rights. So she says in her book that property rights is animal territoriality by any other name. It doesn't mean you exist there. Wow. With no one else coming in, it doesn't mean you don't share that space. It doesn't mean you cede space when you need to. It means you live together without killing each other because most animals don't want to kill each other no. for space. They just try to they try to fight. They try to scare. They try to put set markers out like mm -hmm. um, and even like the book's really great and straightforward. Um, but she talks about like mountain lions, if they have, you know, a male cub, that male will eventually strike out on his own. But if that mountain lion has a female cub, that female inherits her territory. Um, oh, so wow. animals exist in a lot of ways. We just have to do things better. And so she talks about the existing law system. Anyway, that's a big segue to what I'm going to say. Um, but she gave me the opportunity to, to give a little lecture and to work with other artists at her home to launch this initiative from ASU, um, kind of about her book and about this idea of, of how property law could be wielded in a way that could benefit people in wildlife better. Yeah, It wasn't just this about how do you build corridors through our backyards. And I think about that 
living in rural, you know, rural, not like Knoxville, Tennessee too, like, what if a mountain lion moved through? What if a red wolf could move through? Mm. What does that look like? And so at Karen's house, I did these really cool projections in her um, garage of um, a few keystone species. So Mexican wolves, mountain lions, and jaguars. Um, and we were taking photos of them. And my friend, Rana from grad school, her wife, Ronnie, um, is this like natural art photographer. Oh. <laughs> photo from Karen's kitchen where you could just see this like mountain lion like peeking out from the garage because the door was open. And I was like, oh, that's fucking cool, Ronnie. And then so I started, so thinking about Karen's book, thinking about what you can do at home, thinking about my trajectory the last decade or so doing public art, thinking about my own burnout, you know, too, and where I'm at. Um, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> no, <laughs> so we're not. I have to think time. Um, my next project right now, of course, something might come up publicly that, of course, I'll say yes to. But right now, my pet project is focusing on, like, my yard and my home and how to turn this particular space into um because zach and i live on two acres the house is like oh, dope i don't even know if you'd call it a house it's like i don't i don't think it started as one it's kind of like this built it's kind of like shack like it's a fixer <laughs> upper of sorts it's very small we live very mild meagerly out here um and and the house isn't like done i could give you a tour and, and you like i don't know i sometimes i'm like um very different from how i was raised right like my parents idea of like a perfect home is not mine like um, of course not like it's not painted everywhere we rip floorboards off and not replace them the steps aren't like things just look kind of like shitty but like it's it's cheap and it's what i can do to like live zach and i are happy and we see deer and wildlife everywhere and it's quiet and we have synchronous lightning bugs in our backyard in the summer so like, there's oh. beautiful things beyond the dumbass aesthetic right stuff um, so I was thinking about that and I was like, well, why don't you just kind of flip that whatever insecurity you might feel about a house that, you know, doesn't look like your friends who are in a different financial place in their life or different whatever, different goals. Um, what can I do here that allows me to see this house for some honesty? And so the next thing I'm going to start doing, I just started the other night doing these sketches of my different areas of my home and started yeah. ideating what kind of animal projections they might be. So I've been thinking of these really kind of similar to what I did in Karen's house, these more like kind of blurry colorized stills that blend into movement. So Ooh. not necessarily how animal land or how like the red wolf projections look, but this kind of like still morphing into a still and how I can photograph that and what that would look like. Um, so I'm starting to just do some work in my own home, taking, taking kind of um, ownership in this way of, of, of what, Again, the most high-end push for people, right? Like, I'm not saying people should let mountain lions into their home. Right? Like, I don't want a mountain lion going into my house. Yeah. Um, but again, these are big art. Can art can do big, wild things that wouldn't necessarily happen, but can move our thinking. So I'm going to do all these little. I'm thinking about the species we don't always like in our homes, and going to do some projections on those. So that would include apex predators, but also the things people are like, ooh, opossums. Ooh, like like we had last summer, um, a groundhog kind of living under our bathroom yeah. built off the side of this little <laughs> shack house um and then zach's parents like they're so they're so sweet but they're like you should you should put that you should you know put a board over it make sure that animal's out that's not going to be good for your foundation and zach and i are like fuck it like i don't care i'm that, not really worried about it. like the groundhog can, i think like some cats were living in there like it's yep. just a shelter and i'm trying to shift my mindset of like shelter for me and shelter for other species and what that can look like and so so to bring that back my next project um, will still be kind of projection-based because I got all these great little baby projectors for that grant. Yes. And so I want to set up these little projections, like 
in my home and what does it look like to not be in a gallery, to not be in public, but to be in this private space that I can consider um, public property to the more than human world. And so that's um, very beginning stages of that. I'm just sketching some things out right now, but that's the next um, project I'm working on. Woo, yes, right at home. <laughs> I love yep. that. That's so cool. I just love this little Lauren starting in Ohio playing sports, and now you're in <laughs> Knoxville, Tennessee, doing incre incredibly amazing, fulfilling work. And your journey is not over, but man, you've you've done a lot of great things uh, uh, up until now. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. It's really great, and and yes, like the trajectory and the life of artists always inspire me. I love us. I think yes, it's it's good to be us. Beautiful way to move. It's good. It's good to be us. It's not always the most like stable, but it is the most beautiful, and I stand by that. And I very much appreciate your time, Daniel. And and this was a great walk down art memory lane and wild ride. Yes, it won't be the last time we talk because we have a bright future ahead. And obviously, I'll see you in April when we go to the fire the fire chat. I'm gonna read your grants. Yes. Oh God. Now I gotta write them. Nothing now. It's it's the time. But Lauren, thank you. I want to link. You also have a book out. This is it still available? Yeah, I think okay. I think it's on my website. I have to double check. If yeah, that's it is. My first artist catalog. Yes, yep. it's still there. It's like less than twenty bucks. So I'm gonna link that uh, to support you. We want you to keep going. Um, Thank I'm gonna you. link all your descriptions and this every everything you've done. You have so many videos and stuff like that. I mean, just everyone listening to this is go check it all out. You can probably spend all day on her website. Um, <laughs> But yes, other than that, we're good. I, I, uh, I thank you so much for doing this with me and um, look forward to seeing you soon. Yep, thank you. Until next time, Daniel. Absolutely. Be safe. You too. Bye. The Free Pizza Podcast. We are on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Just go on the Google App Store. Go on everywhere. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, MySpace, Live Journal, Twitter. We tweet. We'll do smoke sniggles. Whatever y'all need. Thank y'all so much. Have a good night.